0: Let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7 this morning. The ultimate question is, who is Jesus? That's what we refer to as man on the street interviews. We did that a few weeks ago. where we had a very similar video, and uh, the point in doing that was to show the varied responses. If you remember, a few weeks ago we started this section within Mark that started with the death of John the Baptist. And a question was posed, who do the people think that I am? And as we saw in this video here, back in the days of Jesus as well, the reaction—excuse <clears throat> me—the reaction was varied. Some thought he was the reincarnated John the Baptist. Some thought that he was um, just another prophet. Some thought he was Elijah. And so we see some of that same confusion even exist today. Who can tell me what the two primary purposes in the Gospel of Mark are? I've repeated them over and over, so hopefully we finally got that ingrained in our brains. But there's two primary purposes that Mark is trying to prove or trying to share with us. Anybody remember what those were? You don't have to be too shy. Jesus is Messiah. And what else? Jesus is the Son of God. He starts off in the very first verse with that. So to reveal Jesus as Messiah, and then to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. Now he does that through the way that he selects certain... um, Certain episodes in the life of Christ. He does that through the certain miracles that he takes and he, he arranges those. He doesn't necessarily do it chronologically, but he arranges them with themes. And so the theme, kind of in this section we're in right now, is Who am I? Who do people think that I am? And he uses a number of things to do that. But one of the really interesting things about the book is he uses um, two climaxes to drive home those two points. One of the climaxes comes with our passage today, which is right here in Mark chapter 8. And it's where Jesus makes his confession that, or Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ. The second climax of the book comes when the Roman soldier is standing at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion, and he says, surely this is the Son of God. And so we have these two mountain peaks, these two climaxes in the book, that ultimately is where Mark sort of says... Here it is. He sort of hinted at it. He gives us examples. He gives us these, these um, themes and stuff through the way that he arranges his book to sort of hint at or to reveal that Christ is both Messiah and the Son of God. But then he sort of drives the, the bullet point right here today with just sort of coming right out and having Peter tell us he's the Christ. And he does the same thing with the Roman soldier. So today we come to that the, the first climax here, Peter's confession. And there's four parts to our passage today that we'll walk through. Let me just tell you what those are going to be. First, Mark is going to use a miracle to sort of foreshadow what Peter is about to share. Peter then will reveal Jesus Christ as Messiah to us. Jesus will ultimately then reveal his true purpose as Messiah. And then finally, Jesus will reveal what's required for us to be his follower. Now, there's a lot that happens at this particular point. um, And you'll see that as we study through the rest of the book. For the first time, Jesus today reveals definitively that he is indeed the Messiah. Remember, it all started with a question, well, who do do you guys think I am? And he's going to start his passage that way today. Well, today, he allows Peter to make a definitive statement. So this is the first time that Jesus Christ will reveal definitively to his disciples, yes, I really am the Messiah. There's no more guessing that takes place. And so from this point, he will now begin to, to talk more plainly with them, He will be more deliberate in his conversation with them. Um, In many respects, his focus now will shift away from the crowds, more specifically to the training of the disciples. And so we'll see that shift as we look through the rest of the book here. Mark actually presents this as a turning point, where if you remember, he presents Jesus as on a journey. He starts off in Galilee and ultimately goes to Jerusalem and the whole point of Mark's gospel is to get Jesus to Jerusalem because that's where the cross is and you remember he uses the word immediately over and over and over in the book to sort of drive the narrative forward in other words he's very quickly moving Jesus from Galilee to get him to the cross where he will ultimately accomplish his purpose and so this really is the beginning of that journey now because right after this Mark will focus the rest of the journey on Jerusalem and guess what there's only a week left not for us because it'll take us longer to get through it. But really, there's only a week left in Jesus's life here, and so this is is a turning point in the book where he'll now completely set his focus on Jerusalem, and we'll see that in the rest of the, the book as we go through that. But let's go ahead and break this uh, break this down today. The first thing we're going to see here is Peter's going to foreshare. Um, Peter's Um, confession is going to be foreshadowed by a miracle that's a little bit unusual. We're in Mark chapter 8, I want you to read with me, verses 22 through 26, if you have your own Bibles there. Verses 22 through 26 read like this. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently, and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Don't even enter the village. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time on this specific piece here but there's a little some interesting things that happen here you notice that with this individual it's almost as if the miracle doesn't work at first you catch that Jesus sort of spits on his eyes and rubs his eyes that's even a little bit unusual with using the saliva but the man says well yeah I kind of sort of men like trees it's almost as if Jesus says oh spits on his fingers again you know this time we'll make it really work right he does it again and the man finally says, oh yeah, now I, now I can really see. Well, there's, there's a number of things that, that take place. You remember, Mark is a literary genius in the way that he arranges things in his text and the things that he does. And so we have to pay attention to that. One of the things, the things I love about the Word of God is it isn't always just what it says. It's about how it says it and how things are arranged. We saw that when we go, when we went through the, the Psalms and we see how the poetry there with the Psalms reveals a lot to us. Well, I believe that one of Mark's purpose in sharing this story with us today is because it reflects some things, it foreshadows some things as it relates to the disciples. Now this is purely speculation on my part, but I want us to look at it briefly. If you think about it, one of the things that Jesus does with this man, much of his healings were done publicly. But you notice with this particular individual, he takes him away privately? Takes him away privately. Do you notice something else too? That most of Jesus' teaching was done publicly except with Who? The disciples, whom he takes away privately. Another thing we see about this man here is that the healing was less than immediate. Most of the time when Jesus would do things, it was like that. But this one seems to take a little bit longer. It comes, comes in stages, if you will. And we ask, well, why might that be? Well, it's interesting because if you think about the disciples, if you think specifically about the twelve, they were a little bit dense in some respects. They were walking with Jesus, seeing the miracles. They even participated in those miracles. You would think that they would finally get it, but yet what we find is that they just don't quite get it throughout the text. And in fact, they didn't even quite get it until after the resurrection. But they do appear to grow in the Gospel of Mark. They do sort of pick up more and more. And we're going to see that today where Peter finally goes, Oh, I get it. You're the Christ. Well, just a short time earlier, Jesus basically looked at them and said, Don't you guys get it yet? Just a few days earlier, through another miracle. In fact, after the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, in both of those instances, Jesus basically says, You haven't figured this out yet? You haven't quite gotten it yet? Well, now they start to get it. And so what this this uh, miracle foreshadows, possibly, is... Just like the blind man took a bit, if you will, the miracle took a little bit of time, it does as well with the disciples. It took them a little bit of time to finally get it. The other way that it foreshadows this is the blind man was just that. He was blind, just like the crowds, just like those who came to follow Jesus, just like the disciples. They were all blind, but ultimately this blind man can see clearly. In the same way, the disciples ultimately will see clearly. Their eyes will be completely opened up. Now again, that's partly speculation, but it seems that, that Mark is going to use that miracle to sort of foreshadow Peter's confession now. Peter finally gets it, at least in part. Now he doesn't fully get all of it, and we know that because of the way that he's going to respond today and some other things um, as he heads towards the crucifixion. But he does finally get it. I think that probably happens when he's walking on the beach with Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, do you really get it? Feed my sheep. So he'll finally get it and clearly see just like this man. So this really serves as sort of a foreshadowing. It's Mark's way of getting us into now what's about to happen. Let's look at Peter's confession, the second thing that happens here verses 27 through 30 again this is the midpoint in the gospel it's halfway through the gospel and it's the first climax we've come full circle if you will what started in chapter 6 verse 14 through 16 was again this introduction of the question who do the people think that I am? some think he's John the Baptist resurrected some think that that he's Elijah the prophet some think that he's just some other prophet and so that begins in chapter 6 the beginning of our smaller section here and then we come to this particular passage today and we see verse 27 Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them who do the people say that I am? you see how that goes back to the beginning of chapter 6? that's how it started who do the people think I am? so now Jesus brings it up to them who do the people think that I am? you see their response in verse 28 is the very same response that we saw back in chapter 6 they told him saying John the Baptist and others say Elijah but others one of the prophets but now in verse 29 jesus makes it personal he's not so interested in what others are saying he wants to know what those closest to him are actually saying what is it that you finally figured out so verse 29 he says this and he continued by questioning them well but who do you say that i am because that's ultimately the important question isn't it it's not what everybody else thinks it's not what the church thinks there's a lot of people that attend church, that sit in church every Sunday, they're there because that's what we do and that's what we say, but don't necessarily know Jesus personally. Churches are filled with people that aren't saved. I've shared this time and time again with Pastor Custer from Grace when asking him one, at one particular elder retreat after 40 years of preaching, when you look around the church here at Grace, how many people do you think Still don't know Jesus, and he didn't miss a beat. He said, I think probably half. That's a little bit startling. But Jesus himself said, there can be many who say, Lord, Lord, look what I did, all the great things I did in your name. he said, "I, I didn't know you. So really the question does come down to, who do you say that I am? And so he asked that specifically of the disciples. Look at what Peter does. Verse 29, remember, just a few days earlier... Peter still didn't get it. The rest of the disciples still didn't get it. So when Jesus is asked, who do you say that I am? Verse 29, Peter answered and said to him definitively, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that's been promised to us in the Old Testament. I think this is likely the point at which Jesus was saved. Because for the first time we see Peter himself reveal an understanding of Christ as savior because that's what the messiah was now we'll see that peter didn't have a super well informed full theology of messiahship in fact we're going to see that here in a second which means he didn't understand everything but the one thing peter seems to understand appreciate and accept here is that you are the promised one you are the savior that's ultimately what it requires to be saved is it not You don't have to have a super well-defined theology. You don't have to understand everything. All you've got to understand is you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And that punctuates Mark's climax here. Because remember, he's been getting us to this point. His point is to prove and to show us that Jesus was exactly who the Old Testament promised, which was the Christ. Immediately upon Peter's confession, though, Jesus does something rather interesting. Verse 30, look at what it says. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. This big announcement, you're the Christ. And he says, yeah, but don't tell anyone. A little puzzling. Jesus had given given similar warnings earlier. If you remember some of the healings that he did, he said, don't go tell anyone. And what did the people do? Ran off and told everyone. In those instances, it was probably because he was getting crushed by the crowds hard to carry out mission and and other things when you're being pressed in on all sides and so there were times where Jesus simply told people don't go tell anyone because there were so many people coming to Jesus made it difficult to do what he needed to do the simplest explanation of why Jesus gave this warning is actually found in John 6 you don't have to turn there but John basically says that the crowd, Jesus knew the crowds wanted to seize him to make him king so the biggest reason Jesus said don't tell anyone yet is because the crowds are already wanting to make him king. And really, today is Palm Sunday. Isn't that really what Palm Sunday is all about? He goes into Jerusalem. They want to make him king immediately. But you remember, Jesus didn't come to be king immediately. He came for another specific purpose, and he'll get to that in a second here. And so, the reason he probably tells Peter, well, don't tell anyone here, is because he was not prepared for the crowds to seize him and make him king at this point. And part of the reason for that is because they didn't understand we're going to see that in today's text as well. They did not understand what it really meant for Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, what it means for him ultimately to be the king. And so there's going to have to be some clarification. We see in the next few verses that the people's expectation regarding Messiah didn't align with God's. What, what were the people's expectations of Messiah? Well, they expected the conquering king to come. They thought that, that this Messiah would come and crush the Romans and establish the Davidic kingdom that's what they expected that's what they wanted when Jesus came into um, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and so they were more than prepared to take and make him king but they misunderstood it's not why Jesus came at least not this time Katie and I had a, a brief discussion in the car driving here song on the radio Lion and the Lamb I said isn't it interesting that Jesus is referred to as both a lion and a lamb those are I mean the lion eats the lamb you know they're totally opposite the reality of it is that he came as a lamb the first time he came as a, or comes as a lion the second time and so he was not prepared at this point to be the lion king if you will so what does Jesus do at this point well verse 31 he's now going to reveal his true purpose as Messiah he's going to correct some of their thinking Again, they expected this conquering Messiah, someone who would overthrow Rome and usher in the Davidic kingdom. However, the Old Testament prophesied a suffering Messiah instead and somehow they seemed to miss that. They said that this suffering Messiah would come first and so that's now what Jesus is going to focus on. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man, it's a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. So the first thing he says is I have to suffer. I have to suffer. And he says, I'm going to be rejected. That had to come as a startling shock because why wouldn't the leaders of Israel accept him? Here's the Messiah. They've been teaching us about a Messiah all these years and he's finally here. Why? Jesus, we are you going to reject you? Goes on further. He says, that's not it. I'm also going to be killed. That would come as a shock as well, would it not? You just got here. You're the Messiah. Messiah doesn't die. He's a king. Nobody can kill you. It goes on, he says in 31, But after three days, I will rise again. Now, the text tells us here, he said it plainly. Now, the reason that's important is because he's so often talked in parables, mostly to the crowds, but even to some degree, the disciples. Um, he wasn't always specifically clear because they weren't always ready to accept it. And so there's certain things that Jesus sort of kept concealed. In fact, I was studying a passage uh, that's a few weeks out here. And... Um, specifically says that the disciples were prevented from seeing it clearly. It's because they weren't quite ready yet. But in this particular instance, Jesus told them plainly, look, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, but the good news is that I'm going to rise again. Now, as you may expect, that didn't sit too well with the disciples. Peter now does something that is basically a gut reaction based on what he understands is supposed to happen he's got his own ideas of what's supposed to happen with messiah verse 32 second half of it and peter took jesus aside took him aside and began to rebuke him think about that for a second peter a fisherman takes aside the son of god we, we got to talk you're not getting something here, Jesus. You got something wrong. I think you're misinformed. Maybe he even took out the Hebrew scroll from Isaiah or something and said, "Jesus, no, wait a minute. The, no, 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 no. What you just shared—that's that's not right. That, there's something wrong with that." And so Jesus it says here that Peter actually rebuked him. It implies that he was trying to set Jesus straight. It means that he disapproved of what Jesus was saying. He wasn't happy with it. Well, again, as we could imagine, Jesus didn't take too well to that either. Look at verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, I think that's important because of what it basically tells us is that Jesus recognized that the disciples were all feeling the same way. That's why he looks at them. He realized Peter wasn't alone in his assessment. All those disciples are letting Peter do the talking because Peter was the outgoing one. We know that about Peter. You know, he's... In fact, when they run into the tomb, John gets there first, but John stops and peeks in. Peter just bursts right in, right? Well, Jesus looks at him and says, says turning and seeing the disciples, he rebukes Peter. And he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not getting or setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So, what was Peter's issue? Well, he wanted a king. He wanted oppression from the Romans to be relieved. He wanted all the promises promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He wanted to see his enemies destroyed. But what Jesus says is that's not God's interest, it's man's, it's yours. But notice he also attributes it to the enemy. Why is that important here? We know that there's no way that Satan ultimately wanted Christ to go to the cross. At least not to rise after that. He didn't want him to accomplish his purpose. I'm sure Satan wanted to kill him. He didn't probably want him to be sacrificed as a lamb and ultimately to rise from the dead. And so what he basically does here is he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, no, you, you've got it wrong. You're interested in your own interest. You're not interested in God's interest. There's a bigger picture here. They'd all missed it. I want you to turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. Probably one of the best descriptions that I can provide for us this morning comes from First Peter chapter 1. You want to know what God's interests are? 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this way you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. God didn't send Jesus Christ simply to give the Jews a great life. He didn't simply come to conquer Rome. That's not why Jesus came. God had a bigger picture in mind and it was a salvation of man's and women's souls. That's why he came. One of the problems that I have today with some of what we see in the church today where churches have strayed from really the purpose of the gospel and more into a a social justice mentality, what they call a redeeming of culture and society. It's the idea that changing the world, that what God really wants us to do is to um, reestablish Christian principles. There's actually, within some of the reformed movement, um, there's actually a, a push that we have to somehow Christianize the world before Jesus can return, because that's what God ultimately wants. He wants us to redeem culture and society. And the problem with that is it takes the focus off God's real purpose. It doesn't mean we don't do good things. It doesn't mean we don't reach out. It doesn't mean we don't take care of the poor and the widow and the helpless. In fact, we're going to see that a little bit later in the Gospel of Mark. But the focus is ultimately on eternity, not earthly things. And so Peter was focusing more on earthly things. On man's interest rather than God's interest. And so his perspective of what it meant for Christ to be the Messiah was wrong. And so Christ takes this opportunity to reveal what his true purpose is as Messiah. I didn't come just to relieve suffering here. I didn't come just to heal the sick. To release some from demon possession. It's part of it. But I ultimately came to go to Jerusalem to die and to rise Because God's redemptive plan involves the salvation of mankind, not just earthly relief. And so he corrects the misunderstanding. Now, this is where it gets real and it gets interesting for us. Because Jesus now moves from my real purpose to here's what it's going to take for you to follow me. Here's what it's going to take to follow me. Up until this point... Many have been following Jesus out of curiosity or because they were seeking to be healed or released from their demonic oppression. In other words, they were running Jesus because they were oppressed, they were hurt. They were desperate. They were coming to him out of curiosity. Almost all of these things were, in some respects, earthly. They wanted their ailments relieved. They wanted relief. But, there's actually a cost that's associated with wanting to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus now moves his disciples into that, and he gets very real with them. In other words, it's not just enough to follow him because we're curious, or because of what he can do in an earthly sense. I remember when I was brought to Christ, I was brought to Christ through um, something from Campus Crusade for Christ, the four spiritual laws. I'm thankful for that. But the four spiritual laws begins with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does eternally. I interpreted that to mean, oh, everything's going to be great if I come to Jesus. But that's not the reality. The one thing that that Mr. Kegel did not share with me when he shared the gospel with me was the cost. (laughs) He shared all the benefits. And again, I'm thankful he did. But what Jesus does here now is he explains to his disciples the cost. What does it mean to be my follower? I think there's a lot of folks today that don't quite understand or grasp this. I think part of it is the struggle we have living here in the United States because we don't face much opposition. We often don't have a cost with coming to know Christ. Now, it's looking more like we will. Things that are coming down the pipe. But look at what he does in verses 34 through 38. It says, He summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Jesus actually uses three imperatives here. Those are commands. The reason that's important for us is because it makes these things requirements, not options or suggestions. In other words, these are demands that Jesus is making of his disciples. The three imperatives are deny, take up, and follow. Let's go ahead and take a look at those things. The first imperative, deny himself, actually means to abandon one's own self-interest and self-determination. Did you get that? to abandon one's own self-interest and self-determination. Self-interest refers to those things you simply want to do. It's what's in my best interest. It's what's good for me. Self-determination means you set your own course. You go where you want to go. You decide that it's ultimately most important that you set the course of your life. And so what he says by denying himself means to refer to uh, abandon those things in favor of pursuing God's interest and God's will. In other words, what what it's going to require is that we give up ourselves and we pursue Him, His interests, His will, His purpose. So it means I'm no longer the supreme authority in my life. Who is? God's ultimately the supreme authority. It means that I put God's interests and will above my own, which means sometimes... God's interest may conflict with my own. It means I'm no longer to live for myself, but ultimately live for Him. So when we think about practical application, I would ask you, how often do you ask yourself questions like these? Who am I really living for? When I get up in the morning, and I make certain decisions, who am I trying to please? Myself? Myself? so I wake up and say what do I want to do today that will make me feel good or is it how can I honor God this morning what does he want me to do today second question is how does my life reflect who's in charge did you ever think about that when somebody looks at your life and they were you were to ask them who do you think's in charge in my life do you think they would say well you are Or do you think they would recognize, you know, it's interesting because you seem to have this philosophy that God is in control of your life. That you submit to Him. That's an indicator that you've given up your will for His. Another question we might ask is, does my will trump God's will? What I want, does that trump what I think God might want for me? So again, one of the first imperatives Jesus uses is the idea of denying ourselves and favoring Him. The second imperative He uses is to take up His cross. That's an expression of self-denial, but I think it's often misunderstood. I think oftentimes when we hear this, you know, take up my cross or take up your cross, it's normally treated as simply a symbol or a euphemism of um, sort of self-denial. It's a euphemism for taking on a burden. And I think there's an element of that um but the cross here represents something very different. Think about this for a second. What did the cross represent in Jesus' day? Think about it for a second. What are we coming up on in a week here? What happens on the cross? Why did the Romans use a cross? What took place on the cross? Was it a burden? Now think about that for a second. It represents torture. Represents death, wickedness. I think when we simply make picking up your cross a burden-carrying symbol, we do it a huge disjustice or injustice because it's a very specific picture here. The cross was a nasty thing. It was one of the probably one of the most um, painful ways. There, there are other ways of torture that are probably equally as revolting but the cross represents this brutal brutal painful death that Christ would suffer it's a graphic word picture and so when jesus says you have to pick up your cross he's not just saying you got to pick up a burden you know be you know carry your burdens for me Basically, he's saying you need to pick up your cross and be tortured and killed. Now he's speaking metaphorically, but in some respects, literally. Does that surprise anyone? We live in one of the few places on this planet where Christians are not routinely killed on a regular basis and tortured in some grotesque ways, oftentimes. We are in a bubble here, folks. We really are. Um, I have taken routinely now uh, to pray for the persecuted church all over this world because we forget that we have brothers and sisters every day who are brutalized because of their faith. That's what Jesus is referring to here. You have to be willing to pick up a cross. I know that doesn't make any of us feel good. So some questions regarding that. How do you face opposition or persecution for your faith? We're starting to see more of that here, folks. And it's going beyond just the baker who can't live out his convictions and is forced to make a cake for gay weddings or whatever. That's the beginnings of it. But more and more kids in high school, people in their workplaces, candidates running for office, cannot speak openly about their faith. We have more and more there's a, I was reading something yesterday about another bill that's being proposed in another state that, in many respects, would force businesses that are owned by Christians to do things that are contrary to their faith. Where now, it's just sort of like, well, if you don't, maybe you get persecuted, maybe it goes to court. There are politicians actively now working to pass laws that would basically say, you're not just out of business, we will force you to do what is against your conviction, or you will face jail time. It's happening. So, how do you face that opposition or persecution? Jesus says here, you better be ready to. You better be able to. Let me ask ask it this way Would you be willing to face abuse or torture for your relationship with Christ? I wonder sometimes. Kimberly and I had a very graphic discussion at home, didn't we, one day, where Kimberly was in tears. That is a serious thing to consider. But the question is are you willing? if you have to. I would say that thank God that the, 12, the 11 apostles and Paul were willing to, because we wouldn't be here probably. Every one of the apostles was killed for their faith except for possibly John, who tradition tells us at one point was boiled in oil as, as torture and then sent off to live on Patmos, the penal colony. But thank God they were willing to pick up their cross would you be willing to face death like I said we're in one of the few places where we don't have that on a regular basis if you've been watching what's been happening in China China has been on a rampage is the only way to describe it they have destroyed over 1500 churches in the last couple of years they have arrested tens of thousands of Christians tortured many of them for their faith some have never been seen again and this is in what we consider to be an ally but some of the letters by the elders and pastors of some of those churches that have faced this stuff have been encouraging to read because they're willing to face death and they make that known and many of them have let's move on to the third and final imperative that Jesus gives here and it's this and follow me he says follow me that completes this word picture because he said, deny, pick up your cross, and follow me. Follow me is often treated simply as a euphemism for becoming a disciple. Follow Jesus, right? We might think of it this way. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and become my disciple. That's not what he's saying here. Think about this for a second. Where is Jesus heading at this point? He is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be the Naar will be rejected he will be beaten he will be forced to walk out pick up a cross and take it till Golgotha where he's nailed to a cross and he's basically just said you better be ready to follow me what do you suppose Jesus really intends for them to understand here is it just become my disciple or in many respects is he saying you need to be ready to follow me where I am going pick up your cross and go exactly where I am going. That's the picture. He's literally, and metaphorically, saying, you want to be my disciple? Then walk alongside me as I head towards Jerusalem. As I pick up my cross, you pick up yours. As I go up to the hill and they nail me to a cross, follow me there. Because that's what it takes to be my disciple. Is that making anybody feel uncomfortable this morning? Jesus, in essence, is saying, if you truly want to follow me, you must not only be willing to deny yourself, but just like me, you must be willing to bear your own cross and be executed for it. You know what's interesting? None of the disciples were prepared for that. Not a one. Remember what happens when Jesus was arrested? They all scattered. Remember what Peter did? I'm not a follower. I'm I'm not, no, I'm not. even said he cussed and swore. Three times and he ran away. None of the disciples were ready to do what Jesus says here until after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, every single one did just that. Interesting. Probably has to do with the fact that he poured out his Holy Spirit on him. One of these letters that I read from one of the pastors that had been arrested in China talked about that. He said, while he was sitting there being tortured and slapped around, he said, I was able to speak. I was able to continue talking. I don't know how. Had to be the Holy Spirit. Then when he was finally released... He said, Man, I'm petrified to have that happen again. But what's remarkable, he said, was, I know that if it happens again, he's going to give me the words to speak and do it. That's exactly what happened with the apostles. And so, as we think about this, the things that Jesus calls us to do, he'll give us the strength to do. Now, that's not something we necessarily understand at this point. And some of us may never face it literally. Which means maybe the best we can do at this point is metaphorically do it. But it may happen. We don't know. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Jesus finishes his discussion with four statements or questions to support what he's just said. And I want to walk us through these things briefly here. Verse 35, he says this. And all of these, you notice, they start with four. And basically, it's his way of explaining what he just said why it's important why it's so important to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow him. He says it this way. Verse 35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is talking again both metaphorically but also literally here in some respects because some will literally lose their lives. So the question is, are you willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel and for Christ? Now, that does not make any of us feel comfortable. Does it? But that's the question. Because Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. And again, thank God that others have done that for us. Eleven guys, Paul, they did that. And we're here because of it. The next two questions or statements kind of get grouped together. Verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So let me ask it this way. What is so worth having or doing in this world that you're willing to sacrifice or compromise your relationship with Christ? When I look around the American church today, there's an awful lot of churches and an awful lot of christians that look just like the world they're pursuing worldly things even it's funny even ministries sometimes you know we just saw the complete collapse of of um, james mcdonald's um, church and ministry out of chicago large eight campus mega church um many now have have come forward people that have worked alongside him for the last 30 40 years and it was an enterprise. And it becomes very apparent now that it was all about building a, an enterprise and building a, a following and um, very worldly. Multi-million dollar mansions and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And to be real frank, in looking at James McDonald right now, there are many of us that are looking at him and saying, wow, what did you sacrifice? You're going to have to answer to Christ now for this. All the people that were hurt, the abuse that was dished out. Was it worth it? Was it really worth it? What in this world is so worth having that you're willing to compromise a relationship with Christ? So Jesus, as he's trying to tell him, look, you need to pick up your cross and follow me because there's nothing in this world that's worth sacrificing a relationship for me for. The last question. Is in verse 38, where he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. It's a statement, not a question, but. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Does that sink in? Jesus is saying that when the world is more important to you than Jesus Christ and your relationship with Him, it reveals something. What it reveals is that you're ashamed of Him. That's pretty bold. Isn't it? What does what you do, say, or pursue in life reflect in this regard? Oftentimes, um, we don't really think about it this way, but we're so focused on the things of the world and getting things and doing things in our own life and what makes us happy that we don't realize that what that ultimately shows is that we're ashamed of Christ. And what we're told, in fact, Peter, the passenger but earlier Peter indicates in, in chapter 1 that it's all about Christ returning in glory and we will see him at that time. And the question is, will you be ashamed at that moment? the last thing any of us wants is for Christ to come back and look at us and saying, I'm ashamed of you because you're ashamed of me. And the determining factor of that is everything we just talked about right now. That's a pretty high price, isn't it? Following Jesus Christ is not easy. here. Like I said, I think we're deceived in some respects because here... You know, we come to Jesus and we go to church on Sunday mornings and we don't realize that Christ expects more than that. He really does. It's a high cost, but it's the only thing that's worth what he's done for us, is it not? If the only reason Jesus Christ came to die on a cross to suffer the death that he did was so that, eh, we'd have it pretty good here, then God is not a loving, gracious God, because that is an abuse of his son. He came for so much more than that. But because of that, he expects a lot. Now we're still saved by faith. We're still saved because of grace. But the expectation, what he wants of us, is that we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him.